my pulpit. Someone left me a Gatorade. I just really, my son wants it. <laughs> you really want it, huh? No, we'll give it to you later. But somebody left me a Gatorade. They must have thought I really needed some hydration this morning. Uh, they must have known um, today that uh, my voice is on the verge of being in and out slightly. So you never know, I might get one of my infamous hitches in my voices. We, my voice, we had two back-to-back doubleheader basketball games yesterday. And even though I'm the assistant coach, Josh is the head coach, I still somehow figure out how to lose my voice sometimes. So I blame it on the boys because we'll try to tell them in a nice, measured voice, you need to do this or you need to do that. But it seems like they're kind of a bubble over their head sometimes. And so we have to pierce that bubble with a loud voice. So I thought somebody was thinking of me today. They knew I had a double header and knew I needed extra hydration up here this morning. But uh, today we are speaking about a very serious topic, a very serious and sobering topic. Today we are looking at God's design. God's design specifically for marriage. And now we know, obviously, as a majority of this message will focus upon, will focus upon homosexuality. But as we looked at last week, we know when we spoke about marriage as a whole from Genesis chapter 2, and we'll reference Genesis chapter 2 today as well, we know um, that it did not start, the the issues that we're facing in our culture did not start with same-sex marriage, and it will not end there. We know, uh, unfortunately, in our culture that this is the latest uh, manifestation of what has been happening for decades and decades in our culture and unfortunately within our churches. That we haven't lived up to God's standard for our own marriages, nor has the culture. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we to take the advice of one uh, theologian, one writer, one author one pastor named Rob Bell I'll obviously tell you right off the bat I do not believe we should take his view on this nor any of his views it is time he says for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay and want to share their life with someone this is part of life in the modern world and that's how it is and culture cultural consciousness has shifted this is just how the world is should we just accept it as a fait accompli And we have nothing we can do, or do we again, do we go to Scripture and say, what does God have to say in the midst of shifting sands of culture? Do we say that as one prolific and prominent uh, religion writer, columnist, and author says that the church should have a rummage sale every 500 years on its doctrine? The church should just kind of have a rummage sale, and you know, the, the doctrines that are outdated, we should just kind of... Uh, take those out, if you will, almost kind of in our mind, and at least Thomas Jefferson the, uh, had the uh, wherewithal and the honesty to actually go in and cut the portions out of the Bible that he wanted to leave up to his own subjectivity. Or are we to have a rummage sale? Or are we to say that, no, again, this is the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks to culture, not the other way around? Or will we find ourselves, as we hear the common phraseology that has come to prominence in the last couple of years that we will find in the end ourselves on the wrong side of history that may be this that may be so we might find ourselves on the wrong side of culture but we will not find ourselves on the wrong side of God's truth so what's the purpose of this sermon this is obviously a very touchy subject for a number of reasons Um, I believe it's clearly settled in scripture but we are as Christians living in a culture 
as every Christian of every era did. And just as the first century Christians lived in a pagan Roman culture uh, with all sorts of sexual license, sometimes far beyond any that we see in our day and age, they still had to speak the truth of God in love, sometimes to their own peril, sometimes facing their own persecution. So what's the purpose of this sermon? First of all, it's to clarify to clarify the biblical view, God's view, on what human sexuality looks like and what marriage looks like. But the second purpose of this sermon is one that I think probably needs to have even greater application for us that sit here today. I would imagine the majority of us, even though we know it's become increasingly, more, increasingly difficult to stand upon the Word of God, would still believe that the Word of God speaks very clearly what a marriage relationship looks like, whether it's homosexual, or excuse me, whether um, we're speaking in terms of looking at a homosexual relationship as a deviation from God's plan, or some of the heterosexual deviations from God's plan, that a marriage relationship and a sexual relationship is to be between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. Most of us that are here today would stand upon God's word and believe that is the case, so the second great purpose of this is to also cultivate, cultivate a Christ-like love for those who are, are desperately dealing with this difficulty in their life. And to, to, to have a Christ-like love, one that doesn't pacify decisions that are being made in life, but speaks the truth of God into those lives with Christ-like love and care. That's the second purpose and I think for those of us that are sitting here today is the greatest purpose. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, and it's no uh, surprise that we return here, the same place that we were a few weeks ago, for the issue of human dignity. Looking at uh, the fact that we as human beings aren't just lumps of flesh, we aren't just here by happenstance, but we were created, and we were created in the image of God. That's why we come to this passage that's why we come back to Genesis chapter 1, and as we do, we'll reference 2 and 3. But we have to be reminded again of what is that imago Dei, that image of God. That image of God, how is that best expressed? How is that best expressed between a, re- a relationship between a man and a woman? And how is that also expressed and shed light upon deviations of such? Now today, because of the nature of this sermon, it's going to be kind of back-weighted quite a bit with quite a bit of application. Um, so we will have our points that we look at will be points of application today, back-weighted towards the end of this sermon, and that will be comprised a large amount, a large portion of the sermon. But when we think about any sort of main idea of this passage in particular, and we think about it as it relates to the sermon, we think about what are we talking about today? What are we talking about? And as we look at Genesis 1, and 28, let's read these verses and then let's see what are we talking about today specifically. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Again, we see that Trinitarian understanding of God. God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That sort of diversity, that unity and diversity. Let us make man. In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So when we think about what are we speaking about today when we think about not only this passage but as it relates to this particular sermon. Men and women in union reflect the image of God, clarify the marriage relationship, and also reveal all distortions. Again, men and women in union reflect the image of God, clarify the marriage relationship, and also reveal all distortions. As we again return to verse 26, it again says, God says, let us make man in our image. We see that complexity of God, that Trinitarian understanding of God, that he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, unity and diversity. And only such a complex being, you remember from a few weeks ago, could reflect, even in small part, the complexity of God. And it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So not only do we see that as human beings we are made in the image of God, the imago Dei, we are a representation of God, but we are also called to be representatives of God, to have dominion over this earth in which he has created. We are not just uh, here by happenstance. We are not just here by kind of uh, the inevitability of the collision of molecules and just time and chance and space and we're just kind of here we were created and we were we were created as the crown jewel of God's creation we see that in verse 27 so God created number one God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them the second reference male and female he created them the threefold usage of bara the idea of creation Three times, not by happenstance here in verse 27. We are again the crown jewel of God's creation. And so he says there is a further uniqueness. He's created them, male and female, he created them. Remember last week as we looked at Genesis chapter 2 as this kind of an exposition of Genesis chapter 1 and also we referenced Ephesians chapter 5 and other places we see that in Scripture we are created, both male and female, in the image of God with equal dignity, yet diverse in complementary roles. That's how we were, we were created. So again, in a way we reflect uniquely, one man or one woman can reflect the image of God themselves, but we also uniquely together reflect that unity and diversity of the Godhead. Genesis chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 28 says this, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So not only are we created in the image of God, but we are called to multiply, if you will, that image of God. We were called to be ones who proliferate and spread the image of God throughout the world. As we recreate and we reproduce image bearers. And all we have to know is very rudimentary understanding of biology to know that only a man and a woman, within, of course, the biblical understanding of marriage, 
are called properly to be ones that multiply that image. We also see, because of this very nature, that a sexual relationship between a man and a woman within God's confines, which is marriage, the way that God created it, intended it for it to be, is actually a glorifying of God process. Do you realize that? Any time that we live out God's created order in whatever it may be, it is an act of worship and glory unto the Lord. God did not just create sex for us for procreation, but also for our pleasure. But yet he did also create it for the pro- pro- procreation and the multiplication of the image of God. And so it is rightly said that any time that we reflect God's created order, and that includes a sexual relationship between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage, that we are actually glorifying our creator because we are reflecting his created order. So we return to this idea here of the imago Dei, the image of God, to see what is God's creation of man and woman look like and what does it say for all sorts of romantic relationships, marriage relationships. We know that it is no accident that God created them in exactly this way and it sets the pattern also for any sort of relationship, marriage relationship we are image bearers we are image recreators and in so doing we reflect that unity and diversity of the godhead and so as we said there'd be a lot of back-weighted application in this sermon today and so we ask ourselves when we think about any sort of application of a sermon we might ask ourselves the question why does this matter what does this matter to me and what do i do with this The first thing that we have to to look at when we're asking this question, why does this matter to me? It matters to us because we have to be ones, as we said, the second purpose of this sermon as believers in Jesus Christ is to cultivate a Christ-like love for those who are struggling with all sorts of sexual sin. But as we are specifically speaking today about homosexuality, especially for those that are dealing with the sin of homosexuality. We have to cultivate that Christ-like love that we would for anyone dealing with any sin, any sexual sin, and specifically this one that we speak about today. That is the whole point of this entire sermon series. The point of this sermon series isn't so we can just kind of rail against culture. The point of this sermon series isn't so we can just kind of fold our arms and say, man, it's just not like what it used to be. That's not the point of this sermon series. Nor is it the point of the Bible study, the companion Bible study that we have on Sunday evenings. It's so we can inform ourselves, not only clarify what the Bible says about these particular issues, but how does the Bible interact and engage culture so we too can be ones that engage the culture for whatever issue that someone may be dealing with, whatever it is that is a particular issue on their plate that keeps them away from the Lord, So we can engage them, and not only can we speak with biblical clarity and truth to that particular issue or issues that they're dealing with, but we can speak to the most important issue for any person that has ever walked the face of the earth, any image bearer of the Lord that has ever walked the face of the earth, which is, are they in right standing with their creator God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Have they given their life to Jesus Christ? Have they accepted and followed him? That's the number one thing. Why does this matter to me? And so when we look particularly about the issue of homosexuality, 
There's a couple of things that we need to understand about this issue and things that we need to take a look at and admonitions that I need to give you that we need to look at under the auspice of why does this matter to me? What do I do with this? As I want to engage, I have the heart of Christ and I want to engage those around me that may be dealing with this particular issue. First of all, we have to understand the strategy. There has been a very particular strategy for a number of decades now to desensitize American culture and to normalize the activity of homosexuality. Now, why do we look at this? Do we look at this so we can, again, rail against it and be militant about this? Absolutely not. we got to understand that there's a strategy so we can be vigilant. Vigilant. Those that care very deeply on the other side of this issue, oftentimes they're extremely vigilant about this particular issue. It is oftentimes their number one issue, and everything else is a, is a distant second. So we have to understand and we have to be vigilant also to understand what, what, what God says, what the Bible says about this issue, and then also understand how can we engage the culture. So again, we have to understand the strategy. There was a book written in the late 80s called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. And whether this particular book was adopted as the playbook for every pro-homosexual group or whether the ideas uh, promoted within were kind of indirectly used as a playbook, you can no doubt see some of the direct call and some of the direct ties to what we see in our culture today. First of all, one of the major strategies, we won't hit all of these strategies and with all of this application we will actually do a fuller uh, treatment of this in two weeks during our onward study on Sunday night. First of all, to, to, to look at, to, to, under, to, to get the culture to see this as a cultural issue, to change the culture and then the laws. They realized in their book, they said that we cannot first go for the laws and then the culture. Uh, also in a 1984 article that the same authors wrote, they said this, the average American household watches over seven hours of television daily. Those hours open up a gateway into the private world of straits through which a Trojan horse might be passed. As far as the desensitization is concerned, the medium, this medium is the message of normalcy. So far, gay Hollywood has provided our best covert weapon in the battle to desensitize the mainstream. Same authors that wrote this book, of which we are drawing some of these issues from. So we see there is a concerted effort to desensitize, to desensitize. Also, they knew very clearly, the, these authors, Kirk and Madsen, knew that they had to remove the label of behavior, the idea of behavior from the understanding. Many of you know what the APA is. It is the American Psychological Association. And their source book, if you will, their Bible, if you will, for diagnosing behaviors is the DSM. It, it's the DSM. Um, and so that is their source book. There was a concerted strategy leading up to the 1998 revision of the DSM to change the understanding of homosexual behavior from a behavior to something that is predetermined. And here is they were successful in doing that. Here's what the 1998 statement says. There is considerable recent evidence to suggest that biology, including genetic or inborn hormonal factors, play a significant role in a person's sexuality. Now here's what's very interesting. 
10 years later in 2008, by no means has our society become more conservative, the APA actually changes and reverses their ruling on, on uh, behavioralism. By no means do they come down concretely saying it's a behavior, but they back off the steadfastness on the genetic determinism. 2008 statement, and trust me, they took heat for this. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has been examined, the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. By no means is the APA a bastion of conservatism. By no means. What does it speak to? And in fact, in the 2013 uh, APA DSM book, they've actually kind of backed off again on some sort of gender uh, roles and determinism. But what does it speak to? It speaks to the fact that the APA, which is supposed to be the source, the objective source in our culture for determining what is behavior and to a certain degree what is determined, um, it is a very subjective process in which when they're dealing with the DSM, the, the DSM, the, the source book for their material, it, 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 the, the way that these things are determined is there's a group of people that sit on a committee and they can be influenced just like any other committee. And that's how these things come to be determined. And so you can even see in the change from 98 to 2008, you can see this waffling and this subjectivism. So even in that, we see we must return to what is the objective rule and standard for all that we see in life, and that is the Word of God. Closely related to that was a need to be uh, pushed. Now, the, the one side of the coin is to remove the behavior label. The other side of the coin was to push for genetic determinism. Kirk and Madsen, again in their book, say, for all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans, again, this is in their book, seems to be a product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during the childhood and early adolescence. So they could not even stand steadfastly on genetic determinism. So we ask ourselves, because we oftentimes see this, hear this question, are those who are dealing with homosexuality, are they born as homosexuals? Are they born as homosexuals? Here's the thing, we have to realize that there are no studies... There are no studies that have come out that have provided any sort of solid genetic scientific evidence. Oftentimes you hear that statement thrown around, but what happens is it's a large game of telephone that has been proliferated throughout our society. You know, oftentimes if you're going to have a conversation with someone about this and you want to have a good in-depth uh, conversation about this and you hear the, the statement, well, they're born that way. One good thing that you can, you can do, and again, you can't do it in an antagonistic way, but you basically use Socratic method of asking questions. When you speak to someone, when they say that, you say, how do you, how do you know that? And they might say, well, science says that's, that's the case. And I say, how do, you, how do you know that science says that's the case? Well, studies have said that. Which studies? Do you know which studies? And what it does is you're not going to obviously solve and get to the root of the issue there, but what it does is it helps people to understand that are open to having a conversation 
that oftentimes we just proliferate what we hear. We just proliferate what we hear, and oftentimes that comes from those with an agenda. Oftentimes those very things can come from entertainers and celebrities and the like. But there have been to this point no studies that have proven any sort of fait accompli of genetic determinism. Now if there ever comes to the day where there is found a, a true solid bit of evidence that there's some sort of biological link, by no means a genetic determinism, but some sort of a biological link, I think we as Christians should be least surprised. Because we know, as we see just a couple of chapters later in the book of Genesis, we know the absolute, complete nature of the fall of mankind. But yet God still know the fallenness. Those that may deal with their fallenness with some sort of a disposition, biological disposition towards drunkenness. Or maybe it's just a heterosexual sin, heterosexual appetites. That it still does not let that person off the hook, if you will, for what God calls a sin and what God calls and says, this is right, this conforms to my image. So we have to be, again, very aware of the fact that there is no genetic determinism. But again, we have to be open and we have to be uh, willing to love those that seem to have a deep, deep uh, desire in this area. We have to be open to speak with them and speak the truth in love. The second thing is we have to settle the issue of Bible and culture. This could be the number one issue. But we have to settle on the issue of Bible or culture. Any issue that we deal with that the Bible speaks very clearly on, and of course we believe this to be the God, God's word, we don't just believe this to be a collection of fairy tales or a collection of legends or a collection of clever turns of phrase, but we believe this to be God's holy word that he ordained and he has given to us. We have to settle that in our minds individually. You have to come to the place in your mind, whether you believe that is the word of God, it doesn't just contain the word of God, and therefore if it contains the word of God, you think that you can pull a Thomas Jefferson and just kind of cut out what you don't want to believe in. We have to come to the place individually, whether we believe or not, it is the word of God, or it contains the words of God. If you simply believe that the Bible contains the words of God, and therefore you can be the judge and jury of what is true and what is not, then trust me. You will always be shifting with the sands of culture. You will always be shifting with sands of culture. This, this issue may be uh, locked in your mind. You may feel, hey, I trust God's word on this. But there will be another issue that comes to mind. That if you don't believe that this is God's word and this determines culture, not the other way around. There will be some issue that comes along that puts you on the shifting sands. Being swept with the winds of culture. So we have to settle whether this is God's word, do we listen to the Bible first or do we listen to culture? You know, there's a wonderful author named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, one of the books I'm going to recommend. I recommend it kind of blindly because I've read some of her things before, but I haven't read her whole book. Rosaria Butterfield uh, is a former homosexual. She was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. And she came to know Christ about 15 years ago and has a wonderful story of her conversion to Christ. And through the remainder of this sermon, I'll quote quite extensively from her. But she speaks to this issue of settling on the Bible as the word of God and not making, putting my feelings in place number one or culture in place number one. But yet the Bible, the word of God, takes place number one. 
There's another term, though, she says, that competes for my allegiance. She's speaking of some of the solas that we know from the Reformation. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. But she says there's another sola that competes for my attention and my allegiance. It's sola experientia, my personal experience. Shaping and selecting those parts of the Bible I judge to be relevant for me. She said she had to come to the place where she realized I cannot rely upon sola experientia. It must be sola scriptura, scripture alone. The scripture speaks to my feelings, speaks to my thoughts, speaks to my judgments. She goes on to say, if God is the creator of all things and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. Boy, she's got it. That's exactly it. If this is the word of God, and we don't just believe this is kind of a, a neat little book that we put up there with Aesop's fables and the, and the likewise, but we believe that this is God's word handed down through generations and centuries, then we believe that this word, and it has the seal of truth, it has the right to interrogate my life and not the other way around. So we have to, again, number two, settle on the Bible or culture, which is going to take place, number one. Hoping then that we settle on the Bible as number one, we have to know the scriptures. We have to know the scriptures. Again, those that work in the uh, office, I believe it's actually the uh, secret service that, that takes care of counterfeiting of money and uh, judging counterfeits. What they do is they don't put someone in front, bank tellers and such, in front of counterfeit money. They put them in front of the legitimate article over and over and over and over and over and over again so that when they see a counterfeit, they know it. It stands out. In the same way as believers in Jesus Christ, we must know the scriptures. If we don't, we'll find anything that pops up on Facebook or the internet that's supposedly written from a Christian perspective because someone may have gone to church or they may go to church or they may call themselves a Christian, but they are not speaking from the eternal truth of God's word. So we have to know the scriptures. We have to be able to answer the question that many people ask. Well, some will say, well, Jesus never said anything about it. Paul said something about it. Leviticus says something about it. But Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. First thing we have to realize is that Scripture wasn't just written to us. Scripture was not only written to the believers throughout the centuries, but Scripture was also written to the original audience, his original hearers. The first thing we have to realize is that of all the issues that the Jewish community of which Jesus came to were lax on, such things as divorce, uh, such things as, as gossip and their hatred of, of Gentiles, the one thing, one of the things they were not lax on was homosexuality. But then when you see Paul... Paul was writing to believers coming out of Roman society, Corinthian society. So we have to remember that. We also have to remember that Jesus affirmed the law. He said, not one jot or tittle will be erased. And he says, I come to fulfill the law. And he, in fact, as well, uh, he affirmed the Genesis 1-2 model we see in Matthew 19, also in Mark and and, and other places in Scripture. We see that he affirmed that Genesis 1-2 model of that complementary nature of a one-man one-woman marriage. We see that. So again, when we think about know the scriptures, we need to use the example of Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Go back and read it sometime in the context around it of the Bereans. When Paul came to them, what did the Bereans do? It says that they listened to his message and they searched the scriptures. 
They searched the scriptures and said, you know what? This guy speaks truth. We have to know the scriptures. Fourth thing, we have to empathize. Empathize before you can engage. Here's where now we think and we turn this corner on this cultivate that Christ-like attitude. We must empathize before we engage, before we're ready to have a conversation. Rosario Butterfield again says that sexual sin is so difficult because it oftentimes becomes a matter of identity. She also says this to, to, to her Christian brothers and sisters. Again, she's come out of, of that lifestyle. She is a believer. She is one that tries to have these good engaging conversations with those of the homosexual community. And she says, how can you possibly have strong words without strong relationships? And how can you possibly have strong relationships without taking the risk of being rejected? If you want to put the hand of the lost of any type, no matter what their issue they're dealing with, If you want to put the hand of the lost into the hand of the Savior, you have to get close enough to get hurt. That may be a new idea for many Christians, but it's the ground rules of the new game. We have to be willing, and that is the point, I'm telling you, that sums up this entire sermon series. All of these things, we have to be willing to engage, not shout from a distance what we believe the Bible to say, We have to be willing to engage in good conversations because no matter what anyone is dealing with, no matter what it is they're dealing with, their hearts are hurting. So we have to empathize before we engage. Very practically, we have to think before you post. Think before you post. Okay? Some of us are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, the like. Before you post something, and before or before you share something, please think about what is my motivation? What is my motivation? Is my motivation, again, to just kind of rail against culture? Or is my motivation either, number one, to educate believers, educate believers, or to give biblical answers to those who are struggling with sin? You need to think about that. Think before you post so we don't do more harm than good. Number six, study before you speak. Study before you speak. Now, not everyone is going to be a theologian or no one, not everyone's going to be on the front lines of cultural engagement from a biblical perspective. There are some of our great brothers and sisters um, throughout Christendom that are, that are on the front edge of that, and that is their full-time job, if you will, is to engage culture. Not all of us are going to be that way, but do we care enough about those who are dealing with any issue of sin to turn off the TV, put down social media, put down our technology long enough to study to study a little bit so we can give a good, informed, biblical answer and how that meshes with culture. Do we care enough to do that? Again, Mrs. Butterfield says this, prior to conversion, my experience with Christians was that they were mostly fearful people. I think oftentimes because we don't study up enough to really know these issues. They use the Bible as a punctuation mark to end the conversation rather than to deepen it. That's the place we have got to get to as believers, where we know Scripture. We know what others are are, are dealing with. We know some of the arguments from the other side, so we can engage with culture. Do we care enough to turn things off, put things aside, so we can study up a little bit, so that we can be the light and the salt in someone's life? Very practically here again, where can you start? Let me give you a few good places to start. Again, Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, book that you can get. Rosaria Butterfield, 
the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. Now again, I've read portions of this, and so this one I can't speak as, as uh, firmly about, but from what I've seen, it's pretty good, so I'll give you, uh, I'll give you that, uh, that one there as well. Al Mohler, Al Mohler, the author, we cannot be silent. We cannot be silent. This is quite different than what I normally do during sermons, but I know some of you will not be able to come to our studies on Sunday night, and so I want to give more practical information. Also, a book by Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Many, many good things. Study before you speak. Think before you post. Empathize before you engage. And again, closely related to that number four, develop God's heart for all sinners. Develop God's heart for all sinners. By the way, who's a sinner? Every person who has walked the face of this earth. Every person who has walked the face of this earth. Is our motivation in engaging in any sort of conversations or to post online or whatever it may be, is it to rail against culture and to try to preserve some vestige of our culture past? Or is our motivation to have the heart of Christ and to speak to those, no matter what their issue is, no matter where on this uh, week, uh, no matter which week we speak to, of what a particular issue they're dealing with in this engaging culture series, no matter what that person may be dealing with, do we care enough for them? Are we asking God to break our heart and cultivate, cultivate the mind of Christ? Do we have broken hearts? If we don't, if we don't, pray, pray that God gives you that heart of empathy and care, brokenness for those who are desperately, desperately hurting. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray now that we know no matter what it is that our world is dealing with, we think about ourselves and we think how even, even those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we know that the old is gone, the new has come, but yet daily in life, oftentimes we let the old nature hang around and so we too deal with sin. We are those who deal with sin as those who put, put shackles back upon our arms who have been taken off, we've been freed from them, but we put them back on. And so we can understand with a certain level of empathy those that have not been saved, not been made new, not been made whole, what they may be dealing with. And so whatever the issue is of our friend, our family member, our neighbor, our co-worker, Lord, may we have the broken heart. May we have a loving and caring and measured heart, one that is willing to say, you know what, I care enough about this person that I'm not only going to study what Scripture says, but I'm going to look and understand what they're saying and how can Scripture speak into their life. God, may we also have empathy. God, no matter what it is, no matter what secret issue a person may be dealing with, we know that our world uh, is full of people that are desperately hurting. Every person that does not know Christ as their Savior, whether they buried the impulse and the hurt deep, 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 we know that there's pain there. And so, God, we just pray that you would help us to be ones that would engage uh, our culture on the, uh, on the issue of homosexuality or any other. We would engage with the loving heart of Christ. Seeking not only to deal with whatever particular issue someone may be dealing with, but also to speak about the greatest truth that anyone will ever hear. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.